0: Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible handy, go with me to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible but you'd like to follow along, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. Ezra can be a particularly tricky book to find. And so if you're using the Bibles that are on the chair racks, you can find the book of Ezra on page 393. That's, the, that's where chapter 7 starts and that's where we'll be today. We had a great time at community camp last night. For those of you who weren't able to join us, we hope you can join us next year for community camp. We always have a great time, and uh, last, uh, I say always, this was our second time to do it, so not trying to overhype it, uh, but we had, a, we had a bonfire last night where we concluded our service. We sang together. We had some testimonies, and it was uh, really good uh, and a, a blessing to hear what God is doing in each other's lives, particularly one of the themes that came out uh, uh, several, through several testimonies is just God's goodness during trial and difficulty. Um, and so it was really encouraging. I will say that if you, uh, if you need to feel sorry for me, I did injure my pinky uh, yesterday at, at community camp, so it's going to be hard for me to preach this morning. Uh, last, last year, I hurt another finger playing volleyball, so I didn't play volleyball this year, and I still jammed a finger. So uh, I'm going to wear some kind of protective gloves next year at community campers. I don't know if they make protective gloves, but I'm going to do that. Anyway, you should be in Ezra chapter 7 if you want to, uh, to be there. Ezra chapter 7 is where we're going to start out today. The end of uh, Deuteronomy is all about a man by the name of Moses. And if you don't have any biblical background at all, uh, you don't know many of the stories of the Bible at all. You've still probably heard Moses. Moses was regarded as one of the, the greatest uh, f- one of the greatest figures in Israel's history. Moses is the guy who is raised by an Egyptian princess in a palace in Egypt, is educated there turns his back on that way of life so that he can identify with his Jewish people and so that he can lead them, he can be used by God to lead them out of slavery. to promised land. And so Moses is is known for standing before the pharaoh and and telling him God's word to let his people go, of promising the plagues that would come upon them. Moses is the one they turn to when they're when they've been released but they're standing in front of the Red Sea and they don't know how they're going to get across and the Egyptian army is closing in on them. Moses is the one who goes up to the mountain and comes down with the 10 commandments. Moses is one of the figures, most beloved figures in Israel's history. And at the end of Deuteronomy, it is an emotional scene because in these last closing chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses' time is reaching an end. And there are several things that happen there at the end of Deuteronomy. One of the things that we see is we see a passing of the torch, we see Moses pass the leadership on from himself to Joshua, who's going to be his successor. We see that Moses actually writes a song for the people and shares it with them. You want to just put yourself in that kind of position. This beloved leader is about to die and he's written you a song that he's going to share with you and teach to you. He gives the people a final blessing before he climbs the mountain for the final time and he's able to look off into the distance and he's able to see the promised land, that which they have been driving to for all these years, Moses is able to get to the top of the mountain and he's finally able to see it with his own eyes. God's promises are being kept and they are coming true. And it's, it's really a moving scene. But there's another thing that Moses does in these closing chapters in the midst of uh, of all these things, the song, the blessing, the passing of the torch of leadership, there's another thing that Moses does, and it's this. He institutes that the people at the end of every seven years gather publicly to hear God's law read to them. So every seven years, he sets up this, this cycle, this rhythm in their life that the people are going to gather to hear God's word read. And he says something really important about that, that I want to, to, to share with you this morning in Deuteronomy chapters 32, verses 46 and 47. He says this, it'll be on the screen behind me, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today. That you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. Why? Verse 47, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Notice the reminder that he leaves them with. This, you're going to be gathering every seven years to hear this rehearsed, and he reminds them this is no empty word. The word that you're going to hear, this is not something that you're supposed to go through the motions on. This is not something that we do simply because we're obligated to do it. Moses believed that God's word was life. God's word is life. And we're going to see that priority that Moses had instituted and tried to to work into the grain of God's people, we're going to see that priority reflected in these chapters and some decisions that these people make centuries after Moses utters these words and passes off of the scene. To bring you up to speed and where you've been very briefly, at the beginning of the book of Ezra, we find God's people, the Jewish nation of Israel, has been carried off into captivity. They are living in exile in Babylon. But God brings about a miracle. He works in the heart of the Persian king Cyrus to allow the people to return back to the land, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, to rebuild their walls, and they encounter a lot of opposition along the way. There are adversaries that oppose them at every turn, but where we left off last week at the end of chapter 6, finally, 22 years after coming back to the land, they celebrate the dedication because the temple has been rebuilt. But now we're going to shift gears a little bit in chapters 7 and 8 that we're going to look at today, and one of the things that we're going to do is finally meet Ezra, the poor guy has the book named after him, and he doesn't appear until chapter 7 out of 10. But we're going to finally meet Ezra, the man after whom this book was named, and here's how he is introduced in the first six verses of Ezra chapter 7. The Bible says this, Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Saraiah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalem, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Moriah, son of Zariah, son of Azai, son of Buckeye, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. It's a tactical error for me to decide to read all those names. But this is his family tree. It says in verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord the God of Israel had given and the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him Now Ezra the book of Ezra has hit us with some pretty significant time jumps as we've been working our way through the book you're moving along you think you know what year it is and all of a sudden the next verse We've gone forward a hundred years. We've gone back fifty years, and we don't quite know what's hit us. Well, that's just happened. Uh, talks about talks about. Uh, Ezra doing doing this in the reign of Artaxerxes, the very next verse, verse seven, is gonna tell us that that this all happened in the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes. And this is the the author's way of telling us that what we've just done is make a big time jump because Artaxerxes' seventh year, his reign was probably around 458 BC, which means that that occurs, Ezra makes his appearance in Jerusalem almost a century, 80-ish some years after the exiles are able to return. So we've just made a a huge jump forward. We've just celebrated the the 22-year temple time, finally finished. Now we're going to jump way ahead to the reign of Artaxerxes and the coming of Ezra to Jerusalem. Well, who is Ezra? Well, his name means... The Lord has helped, and we're given a brief family tree of his, and this is, this is not the author of Ezra trying to be boring and giving us information that is not of much use or want, knowing someday that I'd have to publicly read all these difficult Hebrew names. There's a reason why those names are included. There's a reason why this family lineage is traced And we can get an idea of why this family lineage is being traced, because what's the person he ends with? Aaron. And who was Aaron? Aaron was a priest. So what the author is doing here is telling us, in a a subtle way, that God is keeping his promises to his people. Remember, his people have been exiled from the land. Their temple has been destroyed. They're not able to worship God the days of Aaron and the other priests seem like they are uh, way in the rearview mirror, and yet when Ezra comes on the scene, who is he but a descendant of Aaron? The priesthood is still alive in the person of Ezra and, of course, others. Now, this is interesting, but just consider the fact Ezra who is from this priestly line consider the fact that he has probably never set foot in Jerusalem he never saw the temple he never served in the temple he all he has probably known in his years of growing up because of the time span from when the people go into exile he was probably born in babylon but here he is, the Bible tells us that he is a man in spite of the fact that he's raised out of his homeland, away from everything that his family knew, away from the temple. The Bible tells us that he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord of it, God of Israel had given. He is a man who has dedicated himself to knowing God's law and God's word, the first what we would call the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Verse 10 tells us that he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach it in Israel. So that's the kind of person... That Ezra is, and there are many Bible scholars that think that Ezra probably held some sort of official position in Babylon, because as as we're going to see as we work our way through the material today, the king, Artaxerxes, gives a letter directly to Ezra, allowing him to go back, and not only allowing him to go back, but, but giving him authority to see God's law enforced back in the land, and so that letter that Artaxerxes gives to Ezra is found in verses 11 to 26. And we don't have time to read that letter together. You can read that on your own time. But in that letter, Artaxerxes decrees that Ezra can go back. He can take a contingent of people with him. And this trip and then all of its efforts are going to be paid for out of the royal treasury. There are going to be vessels that are donated to the temple Ezra is to take as much money as he needs, and nobody's allowed to impose taxes or toll or tribute on them. They're free to go, and they're going to be supported along the way. And that letter concludes with this statement of Ezra's mission in verses 25 and 26. It says, and you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges... Who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the land, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death, or for banishment, or for confiscation of his goods, or for imprisonment. So, if you were with us last week, you remember these Persian dictators aren't playing around. We saw a letter last week that the the Persian dictator said, if anybody's not going to do this, remove the support beam from their house and impale them on it. Now, personally, I think that's a little bit of extreme, but that's the way they worded their official documents, and we see that here. We see Artaxerxes giving Ezra the authority to teach and enforce God's law. And so the chapter ends with, Ezra's exclamation of thankfulness to God that he's been allowed to do exactly what God has put it in his heart to do. It says this in verse 27 of Ezra 7. "'Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, "'who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, "'to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, "'and who extended to me his steadfast love "'before the kings and his counselors, "'and before all the king's mighty officers.'" I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Now we move on to chapter eight. Chapter eight begins with a genealogy once again of the people who have returned with Ezra, and the Bible tells us that that they make it as far as the river Ahava. This is kind of like a natural starting point, Gathers the people. He gathers all the things. They make their way to this river, and all of a sudden, Ezra realizes that they have forgotten something. And that reminds me of my own family, because we are never able to go on a trip without forgetting something. And you always think, you know, uh, packing, packing for a trip, packing the way to go on vacation is like the worst thing ever. Because you're so excited and you think it's going to take an hour, we'll get everything packed up and we'll be gone for a week. And it actually feels like it takes roughly two weeks to pack for a simple vacation. And one of the things I've found is what, when I'm loading up the, the truck, or the, the, the car, the van, and I'm, and I'm playing Tetris with everything and wondering why we're bringing all the things that it is that we're bringing, and everybody's been sitting in the car now for 30 minutes because I thought we'd be right out the door, and we're not. We finally leave and everybody, you feel that, you feel that exhales like, okay, we're we're going on vacation now. And then you get like half a mile down the road and somebody doesn't have their phone. Or I don't have my driver's license. Or is the coffee pot on? And we always go back. (laughs) Well, that's kind of what happened with Ezra. They get out the door, they're on this trip, they make it a little bit of the way and they're stopped there at the, at the river and Ezra's looking around and he says, hey, did anyone bring the Levites? <laughs> no. There's no Levites. The Levites uh, were important for the, 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 the whole system of the worship of God. Every descendant uh, every, every person that was in the, the priesthood of Aaron was a Levite, but not all Levites were priests. So the priests, the people, the descendants of, the Air, of Aaron were like a subset of the Levites, but the broader category of Levites, descendants of Levi, helped serve in the temple and this is the thing that Ezra's going back to do to get everything set up and he gets as far as the river and we're like, we got no Levites, So he sends word back to Babylon to some specific Levites and says, you guys kind of need to come with us. And there are some people who answer that call. They meet them and they finally are ready to get started. Again, this time having everything that they need for the trip. And Ezra tells us what they did before they departed at this point, because now they're going to get into the meat of their journey. And just for a point of reference, it's going to take them three or four months to get this group from Babylon to Jerusalem, because they're not going to walk through the middle of the desert to do it. And so it's going to take a little bit of time for them to get there, roughly three or four months. And so here's what they do before they leave in Ezra chapter 8. Look there at verse 21. The Bible says, then, there, uh, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So, we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. you got to think and and, and recognize they're not traveling down the interstate. They're not going to stop at a welcome center where there's free coffee. There's not a text 411 or whatever it is you text when you need roadside assistance. It's, it's the Wild West out there, and they're traveling with little ones, and they're traveling with a lot of money. When, when Artaxerxes gives them the resources to do this, he doesn't put it on a credit card. Okay, they, they're hauling around bags of gold, which puts them at risk. And then they've got children with them, and the journey is long, and the journey is dangerous. And you can see that God has used the nation around them to help them in all sorts of ways. I mean, it's, it's Artaxerxes, the Persian king, who has written this letter, who has given Ezra the authority, who's allowing them to come back. But, but Ezra realizes, I, I can't ask the king for security in this instance. So the king has done all sorts of things. I don't want the king to think that ultimately we're dependent on him. We are dependent for our protection on God. And so they fast and pray that they would be protected along their journey. And that's exactly what God does. God brings all of them safely to their destination. And the Bible tells us this now as we wind down in Ezra 8, verses 31 and 32. It says, then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. The rest, the concluding verses of the chapter, describe the people giving offerings to the Lord and worshiping him. Now, there's a feature a literary feature of chapters 7 and 8 that you may have noticed as we just read some of these selections that I've pulled out so that we could get an idea of the story. There's a phrase that's used several times throughout these chapters, and you might have noticed what it is. But that phrase that's used over and over again is is the good hand of our God. On numerous occasions, in fact, in six occasions in verses 7 and 8, there's a, a, a phrase that our author uses to highlight something for us, and those phrases are up on the screen. There's three on the first screen and three on the second, if you're the kind of person that wants to take a picture or write those, th- those verses down. But what I might encourage you to do, if you're the kind of person that marks up your Bible a little bit, is to read through chapters seven and eight and just underline or star or highlight those things so you can see those anchor points that are woven into the story Along the way. But what the author is trying to do here is trying to underscore a point for us. In every instance and in every way, beginning with this young man Ezra, who's grown up in captivity but still having a heart for God's law. From that to the favor that he experiences under King Artaxerxes to the favor that God gives to people in, in bringing them safely from Babylon to Jerusalem, every one of those things is a sign that God's good hand is on his people. The author is, is, is doing this to highlight the fact that God's good hand enables God's people to receive his word, which was what Ezra's core mission was. So if I could just summarize for us a truth from these two chapters that is just as relevant for us today as it was for them at that time, it would be this. God's people need God's word from God's good hand. God's people desperately need God's word from God's good hand. And I want to talk about two ways that God's people need God's word. Here's the first, number one, God's people need the written word. We need the written word. If you were to do a casual survey of church-going people, if you were to do a survey of Christians and ask them, What does the church most need today? I believe that some of the answers that might be offered in that survey would be similar to the answers God's people would have said all the way back then. What do God's people need most? What does the church need most today? Some might say we need prosperity to carry out our mission. Some people might say, we need political power and influence so that we can preserve our values and our way of life. What does the church most need today? We need security from our ideological and our theological opponents. What does the church most need today? We need innovation, fresh methods, new ways of doing ministry, out with the old paradigms and in with the new. They could have said, we, we want to build a different kind of temple this time, a, a temple for people who don't like going to the temple. Some of you get that. Let me personalize it. You think you need the most... Where do you feel empty? And what do you think is going to fill that void? What do you think is going to give you life? I'd, I'd really be living if things were like this. I'd be full wouldn't feel empty. There's a lot of answers to that question that we'd probably offer. We might talk about our needs for safety, security. We might talk about our needs for comfort. We might talk about our needs for relational harmony. And none of those things are are bad in and of themselves. Those are, are, are good things that we can want. Some of those things are things that we need in some respect. But a lot of times, like good Americans, when we're asking what we need, it's a thing. Because if I had this thing, I could have this life. And that's the thing that would give me the life that's advertised. Then I'd be living. Living then I'd feel full, then I'd feel satisfied. Maybe it's not a thing. Maybe it's a a situation that you just wish could be fixed. I I don't know what it is, but all of us, when we ask, what do we need most to feel full, to feel alive? there are answers that we would all give. And not all of those things are wrong. But our study in Ezra this morning these two chapters would suggest that what we often think we need the most is not what we actually need. Ezra would suggest that what we need most, what you need most, what the church needs most, what God's people needs most is God's word from his good hand. I mean, consider if you were to go to Jerusalem in the 6th century BC, or the 5th century BC, and you ask and look around and say, what are our needs here? If, if this place is going to be rebuilt, we need infrastructure, we need engineers. We need venture capitalists. We need creatives. We need political people. We, we, we could use an army to defend ourselves. We could use some political theorists. We could, there's all kinds of stuff that we need to, to literally rebuild a nation from the ground up. And what does Babylon send? What does God from, send from Babylon? A Bible teacher. What? I mean, maybe down the road, (laughs) but we need some other stuff first. But there's a reflection of priority here, isn't there? What God's people needed from his good hand was his life-giving word. So let me ask some questions of us this morning. Do your life priorities reflect your deepest needs? Let me ask the question another way. What do you think is going to fill you up and give you life? There are all kinds of answers to those questions. And there are all kinds of things, good things, that we want. Okay, if you've got a really broken relationship that's just kind of put your whole life off kilter, it's not a bad thing to want that fixed. But the thing that's going to give us life, the thing that Moses knew, the thing that Ezra knew, and the thing that God wants us to know this morning is the thing that's really going to be life-giving to us is not another thing, not the life that we've always wanted to live, not even this fixed situation. The thing that's going to be most life-giving to us is God's word. And the question that we have, to, I want to ask you is... Are you creating and protecting space so that God can speak to you personally through his word? I think oftentimes our relationship with God is mediated through somebody else's relationship with God. Here's what I mean by that. We often spend more time reading what other people have said about God than what God has said directly to us. Now let me be very quick and careful to say, praise God, that every country in the world in all the centuries has produced books, and podcasts, articles and sermons and all sorts of things where we can learn from other people. And the Bible wants us to learn from those people. But we have to ask ourselves the question sometimes, is everything I know about God mediated through somebody else's experience of him? Because God wants to give life to you personally through his word. God wants to fill you up personally by his word. Not only do we spend sometimes more time reading what other people have said about God's word, than we do reading it for ourselves. But our intake of what other people are saying about God's word is tied directly to the issues of the day. There's this issue. I need to know what to think about it. I need to hear what other people are saying about it. I need to inform myself on this issue. And God's word does that for us, doesn't it? God's people need to be discipled to think Christianly. We need to be discipled to Take God's word and process it through the issues of our day. But what if the issues of our day aren't God's biggest priorities? What if God has more to say to you than how to think about this thing? The only way you're going to know that is if you read what God has actually said because there's a whole world there that you might know about and what God wants to do through his word is he wants to shape you. He wants to shape what's most important to you. He wants to shape your priorities. He wants to shape what you love. He wants you to to know of his love for you and one of the reasons I think we doubt sometimes so much our relational thing with God One of the reasons I doubt sometimes my relational standing before God is because the Bible has become a thing that helps me answer a thing. It's a reference book. And while it can be used for those things, if all our time is spent using the Bible to help us answer a thing... It warps us and to people who use it primarily to defend or fight. Of course, the word of God is described as a sword. But God's people desperately need his life-giving word in the Psalms. Prophets, the Gospels, Revelation, the books of history, the epistles in the New Testament. We need all of it. I'm off track of my notes right now, so I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to say next. (laughs) And let me say this. What I can do, what's been done to me, and what I my tendency is to do to myself and then do to you is say, Christians, you're not very good at reading the Bible, so you better start. So get yourself a Bible reading plan tomorrow, set your alarm, and make sure you get in the Word. Now, I would like very much for you to get a Bible reading plan, and I'd like you to create and preserve space to enter into the word. But it's hard, right? (laughs) So I'm a pastor. This is my job. I would love it if every day when my alarm went off, my watch tapping me, time to get up. I would love it if my eyes opened and I felt awake immediately I skipped to the kitchen to get coffee. (laughs) I opened God's word and fireworks shot out of it. (laughs) That's not my experience. We want fireworks, we want puppies and rainbows and unicorns. We want that kind of stuff. But a lot of the Christian life is ordinary. It's day in, day out faithfulness. Developing patterns and rhythms where even though I'm not very much awake and even though my journal after my Bible reading, which my journal is Red Bible, Period. End. (laughs) However, in the ordinariness, I don't want us to miss the opportunity that's there. Moses prayed a prayer to God Show me your glory. And God passed by him and, and showed him this brilliant display. It was brief, and it was small, but it was amazing. And I wonder if we ought not approach this with a little bit more expectation. Fireworks aren't going to shoot out of it every time you open it. And you're going to spill your coffee on it. And you're going to do what I do sometimes, which is write in your journal, Red Bible. But you are going to get up, or at night, whatever, whatever you do. You are going to do it if you believe that there's one thing that's going to fill you up. You are going to do it if you believe that there's a life to be found here that there is a living God who will speak to me here. That I could encounter the God of the universe who could choose to dwell separately from me, but has given me his word so that I might know him, so that I might know how much he loves me. why he's given it. And when when you approach it that way, every morning you crack this thing open and know I'm opening life. That starts to change things. It isn't fireworks every day. But there's fireworks. And even if there's not fireworks today, we believe that long prolonged input of the word is going to be the most sustaining thing that we could ever have. So God's people need His written word. Totally off. I'm totally off now. Number two, we'll close with this God's people also need the living word. And this is the last thing we'll say about this topic. God's people need the living word. Ezra, individual, doesn't get much screen time. If you, you know, he's got a book named after him that he doesn't even appear until like 65% of the way through the book. And then he doesn't really make many appearances in the Bible at all. So he doesn't get much screen time if you're if you're measuring it by words on a page. But Ezra is highly regarded in Jewish literature outside the Bible, very highly regarded. And Ezra is very highly regarded in Jewish literature outside of the Bible because he is seen as a second Moses. And the parallels are there, right? I mean, if you're with us for the beginning of the the book in chapters one and two, remember the author is intentionally telling us, hey, this return to Jerusalem is kind of like a second exodus. He's already been laying the foundations for that. And it's no wonder that the Jewish people would have seen Ezra as a second Moses because Moses is the one who brings God's people what? His law, his word. What does Ezra do? He goes and brings God's people his word. He's a priest who's skilled in the law, who practices it himself and teaches it to the people. But Ezra, as every Old Testament character does, points us to the need for someone greater than himself. Both Moses and Ezra demonstrated that God's people just can't keep his word. I mean, Moses goes up the mountain to get the the 10 commandments, and when he comes down, the wheels have already come off the whole thing. There's there's already an idol. And he's like, what? I'm gone this long and this is here. And they're like, what? just popped out of the fire. I don't, what are you going to do? <laughs> Ezra brings God's word to the people. And yet you see in the decades and the centuries that follow, God's people don't follow his word. They don't walk in his ways. They can't do it. Ezra couldn't do it himself. And you and i can't either can we we don't walk in god's ways the way he has called us and commanded us to but the prophet jeremiah had written a word of hope to the exiles he had promised them that there would be a new covenant Coming in which God's law, he says, will be written on the hearts of his people. In other words, God's law, his words, his ways would be worked into the grain of our hearts, internalized in us. That new covenant was initiated at the coming of Jesus, the greater Moses and the greater Ezra. And one of the amazing things the Bible tells us is that when Jesus came to bring the word, he did not just bring the word, he was the word. Because that's how John's gospel starts. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then later on in the chapter, in verse 14, we have seen his glory. The living word of God comes to the people. And as we read through the gospels, we see that Jesus, even at a young age, is sitting there in a crowded synagogue with a bunch, bunch of the most educated people around him. And what are they doing? They're marveling at his grasp of the stuff that Ezra brought back. We see Jesus standing up in another synagogue Asking for a scroll to be unrolled exactly at the place where he wanted it in Isaiah and then saying, yep, today that happened. It's done. It's fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus himself said that he came to fulfill the law. And the amazing thing about that is that Jesus, the living word of God, comes and fulfills God's word perfectly for a lifetime. And his thanks is crucifixion. But remember what I said, the word gives life. Jesus, the living word of God, does not stay in the tomb. He resurrects, and the Bible tells us that the word gives the living word of life to all who put their trust in him. The good news of the gospel that weary Christians and people who aren't Christians at all need to hear this morning is that at every single point where you have failed to keep God's word as you should, and you've failed a lot... (laughs) so have I. At every single point, Jesus has kept God's law perfectly. He offers a great exchange. You see, the punishment that we deserve for disobeying God's word and God's law is God's judgment. And Jesus spoke of hell as a real place. He died so we don't have to go there. The great hope of the gospel is that people like me, people like you, can receive what Jesus has done simply by repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Christ. In fact, you can repent of your failures to obey God and receive forgiveness right where you're sitting right now good news of the gospel is that any person that comes to Christ in faith, Jesus gives us new hearts. Hearts that have God's law ingrained in them. We don't obey perfectly, not by a long shot. But God is making us new. He's changing our hearts' orientation towards his word, where we once saw it as something that did nothing but condemn Now we see it as a never-ending source of life. Like the people in Ezra's day, we don't always live according to God's word as we should. But like the people in Ezra's day, God's good hand is on us. Because the living word has come. Obeyed God's word for us in a way that we never could. Changed our hearts so that we love it and want to know it. So Moses, as it turns out, was right. It is no empty word. It is your life. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to believe the truths that we've just talked about this morning. So often your word is cold and stale. We have to overcome the inertia of our own hearts. Mere determinations to do better and more earlier are not going to be enough. Enough. But we believe that you've given us new hearts. We believe that you've changed us. And so we come to you as your people and just ask that you would help us to see your word as a source of life that would minister deeply to our deepest emptiness. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.